This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our last speaker, Dr. Dean Schillinger, is, um, let me try to describe him. He's uh, an amazing man. He's a combination of an activist and practicing uh, clinician. He's founder of the Center for Vulnerable Populations at UCSF. He's uh, one of the uh, first physicians to really take on actively trying to reach out and communicate in powerful ways to vulnerable populations about the diabetes epidemic. Uh, he often talks about how the first part of his career was spent working at the San Francisco General treating AIDS patients. And now the AIDS patients have gone away, and now he treats diabetics. And he, he figures out whether the limb, limb map mutation has to happen, uh, whether the dialysis needs to happen. And that, I, I think, has inspired him and motivated him in a very powerful way to uh, take on this diabetes epidemic uh, in communities of color in a very special way. Uh, his, uh, the project he's going to talk about today has won prestigious awards. It's an, um, an absolutely path-breaking approach to talking to uh, low-income low kids in communities of color, having them talk to each other about diabetes. So welcome, Dean. First of all, thank you, Laura, and congratulations to the conference symposium organizers. This is an incredible, incredible day. Um, now for something completely different is, I think, how I want to start, um, for those of you who are Monty Python fans. Different, um, the other one, um, different in that um, we've been spending most of the time um, talking about sugar and weight. Uh, Anisha began to transition us a little bit to environment, and I'm really going to focus my presentation, which is really not mine, but young people's presentations on the other parts of the acronym SSEW, which is stress and environment. And um, really what these young people are going to be talking about when they think about stress and environment really sounds like oppression. It's really about oppression, whether it's structural violence, institutional violence, um, history, all of this is experienced as oppression, and, and I think part of what we've been trying to do is to reframe the diabetes epidemic as a social justice issue, not just a medical, clinical, public health problem. So that's one way that it's different. The second way that it's different is that um, while I am a scientist, a clinical investigator, I've got lots of papers with um, p-values and um, bar graphs, this is going to be a presentation that brings together the arts and a very high quality uh, art form, uh, spoken word uh, art performance, with public health. Um, and uh, I arrived at this, um, and I'm not the first person to think of this, by the way, but I arrived at this partly because of a lot of frustration I felt um, when I was serving as the chief of diabetes prevention and control for the State Department of Public Health in Sacramento. I did that for like 25% of my job. and. Um, uh, I was talking to Barbara Loria earlier about um, our sons, but my sons specifically and their challenges in math and their genius in, in music. And I want to share with you a story that I um, 
had with my, with my sons on my, the last day of my job, my five-year term as Chief of Diabetes Prevention Control, I said to my family, um, today was my last day, and you know, when I took the job, one in nine Californian adults had type 2 diabetes, and now, five years later, one in eight do. And my boys looked at me and said, wow, Dad, you're awesome. <laughs> so I said, being the wise-ass, so you mean without me it would have been one in seven, right? Is that what you're saying? So my point is that speaking to young people in the ways that we speak to each other is just not going to work. The other point is while I was chief of diabetes prevention control, I spent a lot of time talking to legislators and assembly um, people about this epidemic and the implications it will have on the future of their constituents and the economic well-being of their communities. And I was met with blank stares um, and deaf ears. Um, you know, it just wasn't rolling off their tongue. Diabetes is something I'm going to work on as a representative of my community. And partly, that is because the predominant discourse around type 2 diabetes in our society at that time, and still to a large extent today, is one of shame and blame. Um, in communities of color, diabetes is stigmatized, diabetes is invisible. Either everybody has diabetes and nobody talks about it, or we know everybody has diabetes and we don't want to talk about it, and if you have it, it's your fault because of what you're eating and what you're drinking. And the uh, part of the population, the whatever it is now, the 86% of the population that doesn't have diabetes believes that the people who do, that 14% who do now, by the way, it was 3% 20 years ago, the 14% who do are doing it because of the bad choices they make. So that is the predominant discourse. So I was blue in the face in Sacramento. And then um, I went to a fundraiser at Youth Speaks, which is a spoken word organization here, um, nation's leader in uh, spoken word and youth empowerment. And I heard a performance by a 16-year-old girl who was a foster child who had been um, taken on by Youth Speaks, and she found her voice in Youth Speaks. And I heard her, this is, I was just one of, of 500 people in the audience, perform this poem, which she has somewhat tweaked a little bit um, but it was the genesis of the Bigger Picture campaign. I'm going to play the poem and the video for you, and then we're going to have a discussion about it. What I'd like you to pay particular attention to is the fact that, A, she was, was 16 years old when she wrote this poem. B, um, focus on the themes of today, stress, addiction, uh, weight, self-esteem, and, and oppression. And, and listen to how she weaves this into her poem. Um, okay. And listen to how you are impacted as compared to the statistics that I just shared with you, how, how much those impacted you. We eat like we still slaves. And now we got something called freedom to eat. But granny still chews a soft cover pig's feet. Now I still choose whatever is given to me yet. Family functions, we got that kill your soul food that. Food that'll have you so tired you would think the main ingredient is night quill. We got that death recipe, we eat that. Fried pork chops, fried layer cheeses, macaroni, them chitlins off of food. 
I get high, so high me and kites come face to face and it runs in the family, but some of us hide it by sticking two fingers down our throat or getting surgery or taking pills for me. I just kind of let it show, because after school therapy, night school and work, I want nothing more but to inhale a double-decker chocolate fudge brownie from the Latin bakery next door, and the morning coffee doesn't wake me, a Twiggy does that. Night tea doesn't calm me, more like a strawberry milkshake normal, and I could never be in the same sentence. Yesterday, I decided to write down some ingredients in my day-to-day diet. First, there was a million things I cannot pronounce, and then there was sugar, Flour, sugar, hydrogenated oils, high fructose corn syrup, whey powder, high fructose corn syrup, sugar, dye yellow 40, dye red 52, dye, 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 our food is speaking to us, and if the word dye is in the food you eat and you want to live, I would suggest you throw it away, and it's a blessing and a curse on one, because I know about the same information on food as the Kaiser Permanente nutritionist, but still, I do the same ish, and if I was to just take my own advice, My body would transform from Oprah to Beyonce. I don't want to be skinny. Just want to be able to incorporate movement into a three-minute poem without running out of breath. Just want to play tag with my sister without tagging the bass. Just want the smile to be genuine when I put it on my face. Because I'm not happy and I'm tired of hiding behind big coats and hoodies. Behind pulling my jeans over my gut behind this girdle. And it's gotten at its worst when the vegetables this family eats are even more unhealthy than my granny's pig's feet. We eat them overcooked greens with bacon bits and ham hocks. We eat that broccoli with extra butter and half a pound of cheese. We like our okra deep fried. We like our chicken deep fried. We like our rice, our turkey, our cake deep fried. Eating this shit, you would think I want to die, but I'm an addict who's addicted and it's like I Feed for high fructose horn syrup, even though I know that shit will have me sick as fuck. And it's like, no matter how hard I try, I just gotta have that Sprite. It's like, let me hit that cookie one time. It's like, knowing most of your family has diabetes, but you're still smacking on your sour patches as you're walking your aunt into her dialysis appointment. It's like, Auntie Marlo being blind at 32. It's like, Grandma Susie dying from a heart attack at 51. It's like... Cousin Kiara shooting insulin at her precious nine-year-old arm. It's like Uncle Jimmy having an amputated foot. It's like Brother Christopher having juvenile diabetes at five. It's like, damn. It's like, damn. It's like suicide. Give it up for Erica Shepard. So if I could have the lights. Um, So I'd like to open this up a little bit now and ask you guys to raise your hands. And I'm going to ask you two questions. Uh, What was she, what was her public health message? And what did she make you feel? How did you feel emotionally? So let's start with the first one. What do you think her public health message was? Her personal public health message. There are about seven of them, so you could pick your poison. No control. 
lack of control, okay, that she, this is again getting back to the theme of oppression, that I, I don't have a lack of control, and how did that, come, how did that get conveyed to you, that sense of lack of control? What was it? Was it imagery or was it words? Part of it was that she was in a social and family context where everyone has the same problem. Right. She was trapped in a social and family context in which the same shit, we have to change that to ish, the same shit, uh, keeps happening. What else, what other messages was she conveying? Bob? Ignorance. Ignorance. To say public. So I, I work in literacy right, and diabetes, and um, oppression and low literacy go hand in hand, both when you think about it literally and figuratively. And so I think what you're saying is we are illiterate in the sense of our ignorance of the ways in which we are exposed to unhealthy um, uh, triggers and the way we respond to them. And she's trying to blow open that ignorance. And I can t tell you, she got a lot of pushback, as you can imagine from people in her community who saw that video. It was a very courageous thing to do, often, to blow open the, the box of ignorance. What else? What other messages in the back? I got helplessness. Helplessness. Okay, so one of the interesting, you know, we're, what we're tapping into with these poems and videos is adolescence, love of defiance. This is the one thing that young people are all unified around. Like if we tell them to eat right, eat healthy, they're like, but if you tell them to like screw the man, they're like, yeah, I'm on. Let's go get that Coca-Cola company. So um, were you sensing empowerment in that defiance or were you sensing helplessness and you felt that it was more helplessness? I mean, I think the imagery around her looking in the mirror as she's doing this poem also kind of contributes to that sense of self and helplessness in that. In, uh, how about, yeah, you in the, in the green? I think it's green that you're wearing. Yeah. I, I was noticing it more defiant ask for help. Okay, so I want to take control, and my way of taking control is to ask for help, right, on behalf of myself and my family and, and my community. In the front, and then I want to ask how you felt, but yeah. Um, she talked a lot about the cultural barriers and yeah, but why was she, I agree with you, what was she saying was the driver for that continued exposure and consumption in the face of knowing more than a Kaiser Permanente nutritionist? Oh, well, I, I saw that more as for herself, so that she's kind of trapped. What is the driving force for herself that she names? Okay, anybody else? Tired. Tired? Why? The high. She's addicted. She says it about five times. She's, I'm addicted to this, and she's like going through withdrawals. If she doesn't, you know, hit that cookie one more time, she doesn't want that nighttime tea. She wants that Sprite, right? So she clearly describes, I mean, one of the predominant public health messages is this stuff is addictive. Last comment, then we'll go to how you felt. Yeah. And also, I think she's trying to say, like, she deserves, people around her deserve, people that look like her deserve to, like, be well. 
Right, so there is a sense of um, unfairness to it all and that we deserve better. So what did, how did it make you feel? Somebody sort of said helplessness. What other emotional responses did, did you get? You felt hopeless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, I mean, public health campaigns always have ethical issues with them. And one of the ethical quandaries is when you're raising a problem, are you actually doing it in a way that activates people to want to do something or makes them feel hopeless? And that's one of the things we always struggle with these videos. And, and I think what's important about the campaign is to know that you need to watch them in there, in, like all of them. Um, and one may be more hopeless than another. This is nowhere near as hopeless as we can get, let me tell you. Um, other emotional responses? I felt um, like a moment where I could really relate when she said her uncle had a leg that was amputated. Mm -hmm. Because I have an uncle um, who's also my godfather and I'm very connected to him. Mm -hmm. And he has diabetes as well. And, and it's the slowest death I've ever seen. So in that moment, I kind of got teary-eyed because I did connect in that moment where I, I was able to see how frustrating it is to see your family members or your community or your friends go through things like that where you're kind of maybe either disempathized or uh, or you can get stressed by it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what you're saying is something we've observed with the young people and we've done some studies on how this impacts young people, which is she may seem like the other to many of us, but she is highly relatable to the target population for industry. She represents uh, the experience of so many oppressed populations. And so I think you're describing exactly one example of how you have seen this in your own family and, and suddenly you can kind of plug in to where she's coming from and hear her in a different way. Let me, um, one last emotional response and I want to show you the next video. I just thought it was so powerful oh, when she was so Go ahead, Barbara, yeah. When she was reading the ingredients and saying, basically, the food's killing us. The food is killing us, die, number one, die, she said. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, she's a performer, yeah. Anger, though. Mm. You, so you have anger. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the tonic to hopelessness is anger, I think, in this, in this video. Let me, um, let me show you the next one. Uh, the next one was written by a 17-year-old named Josh Merchant, um, who is from Oakland, is a resident of Oakland. Um, periodically homeless, surf couching, um, but really found, again, found his voice um, at Youth Speaks. And um, let's see, where do I go here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. So I'm gonna prepare you to not to keep your questions and answers to yourselves and talk about it in the break. Um, I want you to pay attention. This is a very deep, I mean, the last poem was deep and multi-layered. This is very deep. This is going back in history and remembering slavery and thinking about the multiple ways that institutional racism plays out in our society today as it relates to the diabetes epidemic. My friend James is in the eighth grade. He doesn't have enough money to support his own diet. He's not a vegetarian, mostly out of fear of starving in his own home. He doesn't know what it's like to work in a factory, 
but he pictures something similar to his current public school when he first imagined farming. He dreamed of straw hats, pitchforks, cows, and barns. It was like a fairy tale. He didn't know about the mounds of metal and synthetic material used to create what he eats. Because of this twisted food system he's slave to, his body is systematically inclined to break down, like the buildings that are broke down for new shopping centers forcing his neighbors into homelessness. At this rate, he won't be able to differentiate corporate farmers from drug dealers. Similarities are too strong. Selling harmful products to innocent people for extensive profits, but like crack, the dollar menu is cheap. The ingredients are addicting. He keeps buying. When James wakes up in the morning, the most difficult question he has involving food is how much is there in the fridge? Three boxes of generic pasta in the freezer. One box of Captain Crunch he might have if there's any milk left. He built walls out of sugar. Easy to hide behind the taste buds bombarding the focus of issues in his life. It's like being high for at least 10 minutes whenever he's able to find room to consume. He's not eating to save the economy or the geological state of the planet. He's eating because he's hungry, so very hungry. The personal survival that allows for not realizing he's hurting himself in the process. James hasn't experienced the taste of fruits pure of attack by pesticides, just like he hasn't experienced a neighborhood that hasn't been attacked by bullets. Some things just go hand in hand in his life. Corruption and lack of money, money and lack of opportunities, opportunity and non-organic meals. He can't hear the cries of exploited farmers, ruined land, dirty water, abused cattle, polluted air when he bites into Big Macs. Because the cries of mothers with shattered backs from their seeds slipping into cracks with no sunlight or a little bit louder and too close to home. The stains of blood permanently marked on his flesh from a friend dying in his arms are a little bit brighter in his mind than the tears of slaughtered animals. He was raised to treat spilled milk the same way he treats spilled blood. Gotta suck it up. Doesn't matter if it's full of pus lying across the floor. His mother paid too much for it. Suck it up. Doesn't matter if wounds are fresh with gunpowder. Tears won't fill bellies or heal scars. He doesn't care about eating responsibly. His responsibility is to shut down the sound of his stomach growling. He hates that noise. It's a constant reminder that he is a product of his environment, genetically engineered to fail, bloodlines to the stories of ancestors, natural habitat, shipped across the ocean in tight packaging in order to be processed into free laborers. He can still feel the whips of approval on his back. He can't take being ridiculed, being a part of two uncontrollable destructive systems at the same time. James is only 13. His mind was to forget it all. His body is getting weaker. His heart, the bridge between his mind and body, is leading the way to his unhealthy soul. It's called Product of His Environment. I just want to say that um, this poem tackles poverty, food insecurity, violence, toxic stress um, in such powerful ways 
Um, we have looked at this question scientifically. If you look at the map of um, diabetes hospitalizations for um, long-term complications, the city of San Francisco, and you see tremendous variation by neighborhood. If you look at Bayview, it's 10 times higher than in the Richmond, for example. Um, and then if you superimpose the map of criminal justice outcomes, murders and other violent crimes, it's the exact same map, right? And you're like, well, why, you know, why is that? Why is violence at the level of the neighborhood associated with diabetes at the level of the neighborhood? I think Josh, you know, um, expresses this in, in such powerful ways. I'm gonna use the Q&A time to do this response stuff. So what, what do you guys think about his message and or the emotions that it brought? Again, not the most terribly uplifting message, but what did you think? Yeah. I feel like it gets back to the theme of food addiction in the sense that there's no joy in eating these foods in both of these poems that they aren't the highly rewarding, the fast food or joy. They're eating it with this knowledge that I'm eating what's good at killing me. So there's the absence of the joy in eating, and it's also the response to toxic stress, right? It's, there's the stress reward connection. Yeah. Other? Yeah. I just can't help but think about the behaviors that are connected to what types of food that you're eating and how. You know how McDonald's. Well, I will pick on McDonald's. Sorry about McDonald's, but how Carl's processed Jr. foods. Okay, Carl's Jr. You know, and how that triggers behaviors, whether it's anxiety or rage or anger, or you know, you you see. Um, how, I guess what I'm saying is how the behaviors are linked to the food that you're eating, whether it be, you know, he looked hungry and depressed to me. The other kid who shot him may have been agitated and frustrated, and how our food system plays into the choices and the behaviors, and how. So, are you, are you suggesting a cause and effect there rather than an effect cause, or cause and effect? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, both. I guess both. It's, it's cyclical. A, yeah, it's cyclical, mm -hmm. right? Or circular, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.